Warning, the following broadcast is not intended to be a substitute for legal advice or firearm safety, competence, or proficiency training. This broadcast is solely for entertainment, discussion, and informational purposes. Side effects may include a sudden undeniable urge to exercise your Second Amendment rights, and you may in fact turn into a gun nut. You've been warned. And welcome to another episode of Locked, Loaded, and Legal. I'm your host, firearms instructor Jose Morales. And I'm attorney Mike Giramita. And we're here to talk today about the practical advice on firearms and accessory purchases geared towards new shooters. Jose, this is something we all run into as new shooters. And I myself, getting into firearms later on in life, encountered this firsthand. So I've got a couple of questions for you because there's a whole lot of bad information out there. We hear all kinds of myths on the street when it comes to what type of firearm to purchase or what type of accessories. So I'm going to get right into it, and I want to just ask you. uh, Inevitably, if you're getting into firearms and your friends find out, those of them who are gun people, uh, folks who are ingrained in the lifestyle of owning firearms, will come over to you. And I had about 10 people do this. They'll sit you down and say, oh, you're about to buy a gun? Well, this is what you need to get. Let me tell you what you need. I have a perfect gun for you. And it's down to the exact make, model, and caliber. They've they've got it all figured out. Color, yeah, yeah. And every single one, no, no, you don't understand. This is the (laughs) gun you need to get. So, Jose, what do you think of that? Well, you know, it's and it's all done, you know, with the best of intentions because I think, you know, we Second Amendment advocates and shooters, we really want to help and we like talking about guns and guiding people. But, yeah, I've been in the same situation, um, you know, you were in and many of our listeners um, are probably currently in or going to be in. Um, who do you listen to? How do you go about purchasing the right gun? It can be intimidating and it can be overwhelming and there's so many sources of information. So I tell people, you know, do your due diligence, you know, ask lots of questions um, and do lots of research and realize that there is no one size fits all gun. Guns, I like saying, are like relationships. They're they're compromises. You know, you take the good with the not so good. It really depends on the scenario, the intended use of the gun and in other factors that um, are very, very specific to the to the user. So to answer your question, no, there isn't one size fit all gun. So what would you recommend in doing in order to determine what type of firearm you want to purchase? Well, research is really the key. Research, research, research. I would say take a a qualified course uh, with a certified instructor so that you get a clear understanding of how to handle the gun properly and safely and what are the rules for storing the gun and shooting the gun accurately. Um, how to clean it, maintain it, so on and so forth. And by learning the fundamentals, you're going to get a lot more out of whatever gun you purchase. For example, if you don't know how to grip a gun and you weren't taught how to properly grip a gun, then, you know, you really can't test guns out for fit in your hands. Um, In our basic pistol course, we talk about fitting a gun to your body. Really, really important. Mm. So take a course where you actually learn how to fit that gun to your body. What are the pros and the cons? And, And the more you manipulate these guns, you'll realize, hey, wait a second, this gun, I, I really can't reach the trigger really well. Or, oh, this, um, it's really awkward to find the, the magazine 
release on this particular model or oh gosh I'm left handed and all these guns are made for right handed people because unfortunately it's a right handed gun owner's world it's not fair right you're left handed <laughs> right most geniuses are left handed you know it's so again it, it's uh, they're trade offs and you know little things that people just don't realize um, your age um, physical disabilities and limitations you know um, do you have good um, hand, hand strength and coordination. Um, do you have any um, physical limitations with your grip strength? Um, are you, do you have any eyesight issues? Things like that. Are you nearsighted? Are you farsighted? That's going to play a part in the kind of sights you're going to get in maybe the kind of grip you want on your gun, whether you may want a semi-automatic versus a revolver because the more complicated the machine, the more... Um, training and uh, um, dedication it takes to practice so all of these things are, are really important and you know to circle back around with the importance of training um, people generally don't purchase a gun based on their action type I tell people hey what action type is your gun they go well, I don't know <laughs> wait a second no you need to know because there are pros and cons to each action type it's like buying a car and realizing afterwards well it was a hybrid car or a diesel car where you bought it because it, it looked good mm. but it ended up being a, an electric car or a diesel car no you buy people do more research generally to buy um, you know vehicles than they do to buy guns mm. right so Take a certified course with an instructor. Find out the pros and cons of different action types and then work your way that way. What kind of action type do I like? There are scenarios where, you know, you may want a double action only gun versus a striker fire gun or a single action only gun. Again, um, approach your purchase as informed as possible. That's that's my my my. Uh, Suggestions. Would you recommend try before you buy? Because they've got all kinds of ranges out there where you can go and rent these firearms and test them out for yourself. What do oh, you think oh about yeah, that? no, absolutely, absolutely. But 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 it, try with a baseline of knowledge, you know. Because mm. if you don't know, you don't know. I mean, if you don't know what's a but if you don't know, I use a car analogy. If you don't know what a good transmission feels like, you just get into a car, or what a good suspension feels like in a car. You get into a car, you go, oh, this is great, fine, fine, you know, all well and good. So you have no uh, basis of comparison. So. Take a course, if at all possible, do research, and then test um, these firearms out and see which ones you like. Intended use, how it fits in your hand, and then, you know, how it feels when you, you know, when you actually manipulate the gun that are really important. And actually calling um, certain gun stores to see whether or not they have a try-before-you-buy. And some gun stores even have a try-before-you-buy and will give you a discount off, uh, like your rental. Right. The $35 will, give you, will um, take that off of the purchase of a gun, which is kind of a nice little thank you yeah absolutely that's something they had over at tulsa indoor firearms range where i was a member where all your rental fees if you were a member went towards uh, the purchase of a firearm within the year which was pretty cool uh moving on from that what do you think about defensive ammunition jose do you have any tips about you know finding the right ammunition for you you know it's it, again it can also it can be a challenge to purchase the right ammunition um you know, with gun people you ask five gun people a question you get 17 different answers you know so i tell people you know do your due diligence and do some research research online research on youtube and such but also use um established standards on uh, you know established and existing standards what i mean by that is do some research on fbi statistics and see what police departments issue what do they issue and find out why they issue what they issue um, ask your friends and see individuals that have been shooting for a while ask them hey what ammunition do you recommend and why do you recommend it 
Uh, and then once you, you know, you make some, when you establish some research and you have some, some choices, maybe get a box of ammunition and shoot it and see how it, how it runs through your gun. And if you have one problem, one issue, uh, one failure to feed, a failure to fire, you may want to go ahead and revisit that choice of ammunition. But again, just do your due diligence and ask around. We gun people love asking or talking about uh, firearms, right? They sure do. One question about uh, law enforcement agencies and what they're using. Is price a factor in what they purchase? Because they've got to purchase so many rounds per year. Well, you know, I'm not law enforcement, but I can, you know, I can, um, I can probably say that, yes, price is a factor, even for civilians, you know. So it used to be the belief that we should run, you know, uh, several hundred rounds of our defensive ammunition through our guns, but it's not practical to do, you know, nowadays. Um, so it probably is, but again, these departments have been pretty much shooting, you know, federal HST or, you know, uh, Corbon Powerball or Critical Defense. They're, these companies have been established, so rounds. I would go with, yeah, I would yeah. go with what's been what's been established and what we have records of efficacy in real gunfights. Sure. So moving on from that, I want to talk a little bit about holsters, how you carry your firearm. Oh, holsters are very, very important, you know, and we're going to go into it on our next segment on how important it is to pick the right holster and gun belt. Hi, Jose Morales here. Mike and I want to take a minute to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to listen to us. If you find the broadcast interesting or informative, please tell others about us and consider showing your support either by becoming a patron on Patreon or through a donation on PayPal via the links at LockedLoadedAndLegal.com. Thanks again and stay safe. And we're back with Locked, Loaded, and Legal. Don't forget to let us know what you think. You can find our contact information at LockedLoadedAndLegal.com, which also has our social media platforms. Remember, we're here for you, the listeners. So, Jose, when we left, I started to bring up a topic about holsters. Uh, any advice for the audience as to what to take into account when you're purchasing a holster? Holsters, yeah, the unsung hero of like concealed carry is the holster and the gun belt. You know, yeah, yeah people don't really give a lot of thought to holsters and gun belts. Um, are really really important. Um, couple of suggestions. One, uh, figure out where on your body you want to carry that gun, and by by that I mean position. A lot of people will, you know, most gun owners. You can ask your gun friends to have a box. We'll have a box of holsters. Shoe box full of holsters because, you know, you have a holster here, a holster. You go to a gun store. When you buy the gun, they say, you need a holster. Here's the holster you need. So they're telling us which one. It ends up being not so good and appropriate. We throw that into the box and then, then begins the search for the perfect holster. What I tell my students is work backwards. Figure out where on your body you want to carry. What position on the clock so you have 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock is appendix, 2 o'clock is appendix, let's say 3 o'clock is, you know, you know, 3, 4, and 5 o'clock or where, we, you know, people usually carry. Again, 6 o'clock would be um, small of the back and so on and so forth. Uh, 11 o'clock would be cross draw if you're right-handed. Figure out what position on your body you want. So how, do, how does a new shooter do that? Well, go to one of your gun friends, right, and say, hey, you have any uh, holsters in your holster box you can lend me or buy a cheap nylon holster, a $20 holster, and strap that on 
the, the beginning of a day and wear it around your home with a preferably with a gun or a blue training gun, something and bang around, bang around into doorways, see how uncomfortable it is and feel, experience what it feels like carrying that gun around all day. You will find out within the first hour whether or not you like that uh, that position or not. And you may have to adjust the position, let's say from appendix to three o'clock, four o'clock. Again, you'll find that sweet spot. Once you find that position on your body, then you can start delving down and say, okay, inside the waistband versus outside the waistband, or do I want leather, do I want kydex, do I want retention, do I want to strap a button or a buckle that that holds my gun in place? Uh, Again, all new shooters generally want some form of retention. I know I did, you know, 15, 20 years ago. I don't like retention now, but it depends on the scenario. Um, One thing I do tell people to do is uh, stay away from Serpa holsters. Have you ever heard of Serpa holsters? Sure have. Yeah, those are the ones with the little button, um, the that the the little button lock release for your index finger. Um, I, for years, I've been preaching that that's very dangerous. In my opinion, my index finger does one thing and one thing only and makes the gun go bang, period. I'm not smart enough to have it do multiple things. So I've seen a lot of and heard of a lot of issues with that particular style holster. Um, again, where you disengage the safety with your index finger, there are alternates. So, but I would stay away from that particular brand, Serpa. But other than that, again, it's a matter of personal preference, and you just test them out and ask, you know, ask around. And again, do your due diligence and research is really important. That's excellent, Jose. Uh, there are a lot of different things that people take into account when they get a holster. A lot of it is based on what their friends tell them, but it sounds like from your perspective, you don't have to learn the hard way. Now, beyond holsters themselves, uh, what do you think about gun belts? Gun belts are really, really important as well. Again, realize you're going to be strapping around uh, you know, a pound or more of gun, and there's a reason why you buy a good gun belt. The gun belt keeps the holster in the same position. It pulls the holster and the gun and just into your body so that it reduces printing, and it conforms to your body, and it's, it's easier to conceal. And it's easier to index to make sure that when you practice your draws, the gun is in the same exact place. Again, you don't uh, skimp on buying a quality gun belt or something that's reinforced that doesn't bow or doesn't um, doesn't bend. And, you know, as a guy, I'm sure you can open up your closet and look at our old belts. We guys that wear belts. Mm. And you see remember those old the belts that have that flex that have bowed over time. Sure. So gun belts are reinforced. And also for us, for the ladies out there, I know my wife, she does not like belts. So that's something to consider. Some of the modes of carry for women um, are going to be slightly different than men. Um, even from the holster selection to belt selection to position on their bodies. Women have hips. Guys, realize that women have hips, and we like them for that, but (laughs) because they have hips, the gun, the traditional holsters are going to ride up kind of high, so there are holsters that are designed offset for women in particular. A woman may not, a lady may not want to carry at three or four o'clock with a traditional holster. It may be uncomfortable for them when they wear the holster. The grip may be really close to underneath their armpit. Realize that there are considerations based on sex, and a lot of times women would tend to want to carry either appendix, but again, it depends on your body style, and also sometimes off-body carry like purse holsters um, are also an option for ladies. But I do tell people, if you're going to carry in a purse holster, there is a way of drawing the gun from a purse holster, and you need a, an actual purse holster, not a purse that you use as a holster, 
but a, a holster that is uh, designed into an actual purse. And there's a way to actually draw from there that properly so that you're safe. Sure, that's important. We hear tragedies where you know, a kid gets into mom's purse and gets mm-hmm. a gun. So I'm, I'm sure security of the firearm in, in that type of a situation is you know, most important. Absolutely. And that, that and along with uh, the individual not sweeping everybody while they're trying to, uh, to catch and get that gun you know, in, in, in that bottom of that purse. So it's really important. A couple of quick points that I've got weighing on my mind. What do you think of shoulder holsters? Not a big fan of shoulder holsters, just like cross row holsters, but it depends on the scenario. Like we had mentioned before, it depends on the scenario. Um, the problem with shoulder and cross row holsters is that unless you're properly trained, you can't, even if you are properly trained, you can't help but muzzle sweep everybody on the way to actually getting to the target you know you sweep individuals on the way meaning you cover them and inadvertently cover other people than the target and uh, with the muzzle of your gun but again there's scenarios where if you're driving all day you may want a shoulder holster you may want if you're hiking you may want a shoulder or a chest rig again it depends on the scenario and then train with that holster what about ankle holsters for a backup Back up. Well, again, uh, it depends on the position of the body, the individual as well. And two things, again, take into consideration physical limitations. If a person has bad knees or um, bad coordination and they can't drop down to their knees to draw from that ankle holster, an ankle holster may not be the best solution. So realize that physical limitations do play a part. And also, if you buy those holsters, practice with them. You know, walk around and you just drop down to your knees, practice drawing from that holster, and you'll quickly find out whether it's a, you know, you'll need another solution or not. That's great, Jose. I'm sure you shed a lot of light on these topics for everybody who's listening. I know these are questions that I certainly had when I was first getting involved. And so with did I, and you know, and we we want people to learn from our mistakes and not, you know, not end up spending twice the amount of money they, that they need to, and uh, and end up with their own box of holsters. We wanted to buy to save and buy once. Yeah, I've got a box at home. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so do I, my friend. So um, let's talk a little bit about switch gears and talk a little bit about legal myths having to do with kind of under the guise of practical advice from our gun friends. Because, again, you always hear, you know, our gun buddies will talk to you about and they're, you know, they're closet lawyers and such. You actually went to law school, right? And you passed the bar. Sure did. Two states. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, what you're talking about. I'll never forget that. (laughs) Listen, a pleasant experience. (laughs) Well, and you can bring that expertise to us and talk to us a little bit about some legal myths having to do with firearms ownership, practical advice and such. So one of the things that I hear has to do with gun modifications. People ask, Mike, if I modify my trigger, does that uh, you know, destroy my self-defense case in court? And the answer is absolutely not. Because the bottom line is, if you're using deadly force when deadly force is justified, then deadly force is justified. Now, on the other hand, if you modify your trigger in such a way that it causes you to, to fire it when you don't intend to and you're not justified... Then you've got a problem, and then you get a problem because that's the use of deadly force you know, when you don't have that justification. But as far as just uh, you know whether or not it's okay to modify trigger, whether a modified trigger will throw your justification out the window, that's just simply not the case. And so by modified trigger, again, do we? I guess what you mean is sometimes you'll see on the internet or in gun stores, hey, there's a competition trigger that maybe lowers your trigger stock trigger weight from I don't know from five or six pounds to three and a half pounds. So you're saying that those two pounds really don't make that much of a difference in the court of law? Well, no, not if deadly force is justified. Now, if you're not used to that weight and you're not properly handling your firearm and, and mm. you know, you shoot it when you're not justified and or you have a negligent <laughs> discharge, then that's on you. So common sense goes a long way, too, as well. Sure. Okay. It's all the same regardless of, you know, what the trigger was. 
Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, that makes that makes total sense. You know, that makes total sense. Now, another um, another myth that I hear is, you know, if you you know get a gun, that's going to kill them. You got to make sure they're dead because dead people can't testify. Oh no, I hate that one. <laughs> I hate that one because I actually had a guy at a seminar one time, and we go through all these laws of deadly force for about two hours, and then he raises his hand at the end. And he said, you know, Mike, is there any truth to the saying that dead men tell no tales? And my answer is, well, sir, I am not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is forensic <laughs> evidence, right? <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm not a doctor, but uh, I don't think they can tell tales, but that's really not the point here. Uh, you know, you, you don't use deadly force. When, when you're not protecting yourself from that threat. If that threat no longer exists, and there, there are no executions. You're not the executioner. Uh, there's a big difference between protection and revenge, and we've got to be mindful of the laws of justification at, uh, when we're using deadly force. So uh, th- there is absolutely no legal sense in killing a person so they can't tell their side of the story. That's, that's absolute nonsense, and it's, frankly, if, if you say that, don't say it anymore. <laughs> Well, I heard someone really, you know, put it aptly a while ago, um, and it always stuck with me. You know, are you shooting because you absolutely, positively have no choice but to shoot, or because you kind of want to shoot? You know, yeah. and from what you know, I've heard you talk about deadly force. You know, we need to understand the the rules and use of deadly force criteria before we just arbitrarily start using the guns. So. Sure, and it, it's all deadly force. That that's the bottom line. Is you 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 point a gun and shoot at somebody. You're using deadly force. In Pennsylvania, the definition is any type of force readily capable of causing death or serious bodily injury. So Hmm. from that 22 to the 50, it's all the same. And during our next segment, we'll talk a little bit more about myths and then wrap up. Another segment of Locked, Loaded, and Legal. So before we went to a break, we were talking a little bit about gun modifications. Is there anything else you want to mention about gun modifications, Mike? Yeah, one thing I do want to say, uh, don't put crazy things on your guns, such as, you know, don't have your eft on the dust cover. Smile and wait for flash, I've seen don't, that. Oh, don't, don't have those ridiculous things, because if that gets in front of a jury, it's really tough to unsee and explain away. Uh, you know, we can do as much as we can to... Exclude irrelevant information, but it, you're just not doing yourself any favors. It might seem funny right now for you and your buddies, but uh, don't have it. You, it's not worth it. Well, we all, you know, we all like the the movies, The Punisher, and we, you know, but you, know, you, skull. you may know all those time. Punisher grips yeah. on your gun. You know, the again, what because juries may not be gun people, right? They may not be Second Amendment people or have experience with guns. Right, right. And, and if you give one of them the wrong impression that. That leads for a bad day. That makes sense. They're, yeah, guns are kind of icons, and in this, um, you know, and in the in the gun world, there are a lot of uh, misconceptions because based on what on these myths on TV and the media and. Uh 
you, you don't want to look like you couldn't wait to kill somebody. And I don't think that, <laughs> and honestly, most of these people who have that stuff, I don't think that's the case, you know? I, I think that it's a, a wise little cute thing to have on their gun. And yeah, we like to customize our guns. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, make them ours, but right, yeah. Yeah. not with, uh, yeah, like, not with smile away for flash or not something. Not worth it, yeah. Okay. How about ammo? What do you think about ammunition selection and uh, choosing the right ammo? Well, you got to understand that, you know, like I said, it's all use of deadly force. So you better be justified in using deadly force. And it's not like uh, there's deadly er force or you can make somebody deader with the type of ammunition. So, uh, you know, the type of ammunition you use doesn't really matter when it comes to the justified use of deadly force. Now, we have heard of cases where ammunition came into play. I believe it jury convicted somebody a few years ago because they thought the bullet he used was too big. I think this this is more of an example of uh, poor lawyering where the jury's not following instructions in that case more than anything else uh, because the bottom line is if they were going if I found out that a prosecutor was going to introduce some kind of evidence related to the type of ammunition uh, whether it's you know a hollow point frangible or the caliber to show some kind of motive or anything of that nature. I'd file a motion in limine before the trial. I'd file a motion asking the court to direct them not to mention it at all as irrelevant. So I have no idea do. what that what that legal term was, but <laughs> motion it's not in sexy limine. as hell. <laughs> yeah, it's a motion just asking the court, hey, they're going to bring <laughs> this up. They shouldn't be allowed to bring it up. So tell them they can't bring it up. Well, the case in point is that, you know, not all attorneys are experts in defending individuals that have used deadly force. I mean, just because you're an attorney doesn't make you a specialist in that. It's a whole different animal. Like O.J. Simpson's lawyers, for example, were excellent at showing, hey, this guy didn't do it. Some other guy did it. Uh, There's a completely different art in showing, yes, my guy did this thing that's generally a crime, but it's okay in this situation uh, due to... Yeah, his legal circumstances. Uh, there's almost an art to doing that, and it's a very, very specialized area. So keep that in mind. Hmm. Well, that makes that makes total sense. That makes one total thing sense. you do want to take into account as well, though, is your circumstances. And are you using ammunition that's going to overpenetrate your target? Are you using ammunition that's going to be dangerous to other individuals? That might be uh, more of a negligence situation than anything else. Well, we talked about caliber wars in our previous episode. So again, purchasing the right tool for the job and the right ammunition for the job, not only based on what you know, because again, you may not know this, but doing your due diligence, seeing what, you know, what other, um, what other individuals have done, what police departments do and so on and so forth is really important. So again, don't be afraid to ask questions questions of your uh, of your gun buddies and say hey what kind of ammunition do you uh, you recommend or go to the gun store and ask what kind of ammunition that they recommend for home defense and realize how close is the, your closest neighbor use a little common sense how close is your closest neighbor if you live in a row home in Philadelphia where everybody's pretty much on top of each other you know you may not want a, again a 500 magnum or a, you know your 454 casual you may not want high velocity ammunition you may want to take that into account when it comes to um, ammunition and gun selection. So we talked about steps you can take before buying, and we talked about the things you can buy, uh, but we didn't talk about where to buy. Let's talk a little bit about where to buy, Jose. Sure. You know, again, I like doing my research first and figuring out what I want and then purchasing. So a couple of places that, you know, pop up from time to time, especially from our gun friends or gun shows. So we can buy, you know, can we buy at a gun show? Uh, a couple of things about gun shows. You may not get a great deal at a gun show. You know, I don't 
think that you know you might, but generally it's a seller's market and a gun show. So in my experience, unless you know exactly what you want, and have you done your research? I want a such and such model, such and such, and you know the current prices, and you go in there, you do like a tactical strike, and you find and compare all the prices. That's you know has have been, has uh, have been the benefits of going to a gun show. Mm. So that's one option, right? Yeah, and you got to take into account some of the legal considerations. I know there's this myth out there that you can just go ahead and buy any gun at a gun show without a background check because it's a gun show, right? The gun no, show loophole. It doesn't work that way. And it's not that, it doesn't work that way. There are all kinds of laws, uh, not only concerning interstate transfers, right, if you've got parties uh, from different states, but every federal firearms licensee, so your dealers, uh, must issue you a background check, and there's paperwork on any firearm that they sell you, so that, that doesn't matter whether they're at their store or at a gun show, they've got to go through that. And some states have additional laws. For example, here in Pennsylvania, if two private individuals want to transfer a handgun, you've got to go through either a federal firearms licensee or the sheriff's department. So you've got to fill out that paperwork and run that background check. So it's not like cash and carry. And if you made that mistake, if you went to a gun show here in Pennsylvania and tried to buy a handgun from a private individual without that background check, then unfortunately you've been committing a felony. So this is serious stuff, uh, you know, based on misinformation. And not only that, you, like I said, you've got interstate transfer laws where, you know, even if here in Pennsylvania we don't require uh, paperwork on private transfers of long guns, if they're both residents of Pennsylvania, if you've got a non-resident involved in the transfer, then that's a whole different ball of wax. Do your research. You don't want to become a uh, you know an unwilling an unwitting felon uh, because you just don't know. So. And when in doubt, call a gun store because, you know, I, I interview gun stores. Call your local gun stores and see how polite they are, see how well they treat you, um, and actually visit them. If you have questions on how to purchase a gun, call your local gun store and see. That's a good test, a good litmus test to see whether or not they're worth um, investing or, you know, spending your hard-earned dollars because if they treat you badly on the phone, don't expect them to treat you much better in person, right? Sure, sure. Now, I, I have to add this, though. If, if you've got questions about whether you're eligible to purchase a firearm in the first place, I'd recommend contacting an attorney directly as opposed to a gun store. That's because, a good point. You know, that's, that's not their job. Let's face it. Right, right. But again, like if you have a question, can I, like, you know, how do I go about buying this gun from this person? Or I want to, you know, they're, they're experts in, the, in, in pretty much the process of purchasing firearms, right? Yeah, you still got legal implications that you might want to consult with an attorney, so... So when in doubt, speak to an attorney. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about person-to-person -person sales? I mean, I, I, I sell you know I sell guns sometimes to some of my students. First of all, I purchase guns whenever I can. I see a good deal, I buy it because I know it's an investment, and one of my students may want it, and I only sell to my students, individuals I know that are going to uh, to treat the gun with respect and, and are not going to do any foolishness. What do you say about person-to-person -person sales? Sure, so that's another method of acquiring a firearm. I know that people look on sites like ArmsList to find good local deals around them, and that can be a good way to do it. Now, I find that a lot of people in these situations when they're purchasing or selling to, to folks who they don't know, uh, they decide to go through a federal firearms licensee even if the law doesn't necessarily require it. And the reason is uh, they want that paper trail that that transfer took place. So that way, God forbid, the person who receives the firearm goes and does something crazy with it. The last known transfer doesn't go back to you and you've got all these questions from law enforcement officers. That's another great point. I'm going to go ahead and just kind of leapfrog and clarify again because, you know, we, we, we um, are so immersed in this gun culture that becomes second nature. 
anytime that I sell, let's say, a long gun, a rifle, or a shotgun, I was the original purchaser, but I'm not bound to take it to a gun store here in Pennsylvania and sell that or and have that transfer take place at a gun store. Um, I've sold rifles and such, firearms to individuals personally, and you can sell them person to person, but when you do that, I always do a bill of sale. And especially if I'm going to do an, a, a, a sale of a long gun to someone who I know is of good repute, um, but, but a bill of sale is always mandatory. What do you feel about that? Well, that's certainly one way to go about keeping your records in that situation. And, you know, going through the process through the FFL is just another way to document that transaction. So you can, even if you don't want, if you don't, even if you feel you don't need to, you can always have an option to do that uh, paperwork transfer at an FFL. Oh, absolutely. Good, Absolutely. and establishes that paper trail as well. Sure. And then in Pennsylvania, uh, in particular, gun transfer between husbands and wives, parents and children, grandparents and grandchildren. That, that's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. So when we talked about that general rule dealing with transfers of handguns between private individuals, uh, there are exceptions, one being between spouses, the other between, between parent and child, and the other between grandparent and grandchild. So those transfers can take place freely uh, uh, among residents of Pennsylvania. So essentially, if uh, my wife likes my uh, my Glock uh, and I've purchased that gun, um, what's mine is actually really hers as well. So I can just give it to her. It's her gun. Um, and I, we don't have to go and uh, go to a gun store, get the background check done and, uh, because we live in Pennsylvania. Absolutely. Same thing with parents and children or grandparents and grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's funny. We joke about that with the gun show loophole in Pennsylvania sometimes. Uh, we say that because you require a background check anyway, unless it's one of those special relationships, we say you don't usually go to the gun show just to get a transfer without a background check from grandpa, right? Right. Because <laughs> that's right. the way to legally do it, right? Right. We're going right. to go to the gun show and, and get our gun without any paperwork because we got it from grandpa. Right, right. No, absolutely. And, you know, what's nice about, you know, Again, there are pros and cons to anything, and you hear universal background checks are great and this and that. It's all, you know, it's all relative, and I like the fact that we live in a state where, God forbid, when when I do pass, you know, my wife doesn't have to go with a wheelbarrow to a gun store and pass, you know, any number of background checks for each gun, especially with a maybe 30-day limit in between and such, you know, so that's the nice thing about living in this state. Now, last thing I wanted to touch on, sales on the Internet. This is more and more common these days. What do you think of those, Jose? Um, do your research. There's nothing wrong with purchasing on the internet, but you have to understand that you just you know just can't go and purchase on the internet and they deliver it to your home. It's got to be done through an FFL. You purchase the gun. The gun is shipped to the FFL. You have to pass the background checks, and, and then the gun is yours after you pass the background checks. That's what drives me nuts. Uh, I've been on several panels where folks who uh, promote further gun restrictions and regulations talk about these internet sales that are going on and it's just simply false you don't go on the internet and purchase a firearm and it ends up at your door that's not the way it works and don't assume you're going to be approved because my name jose morales is like john doe sometimes Uh, i'm put under investigation i'm sometimes i'm you know sometimes i'm denied you know and i have to wait for investigation to be cleared and such so just don't assume that you're going to get that gun um, or you're going to be cleared immediately. So that's why it's always good to go to a gun store. Well, one of the, the points that they brought up when I told them it doesn't work like that, they said, well, what we mean is you could go on the computer and find a site like ArmsList to meet somebody who will meet you in a parking mm. lot 
and then illegally sell you a firearm without a background check. That is not buying something on the internet. Maybe there's some sort of generational <laughs> gap here, but when I buy a toaster on the internet, I buy it and it shows up at my door. I don't buy the toaster and then go have to meet some guy in a parking lot and pick up the toaster in person. You're mm. talking about using the internet to meet somebody to buy a gun illegally in person. That's not buying something on the internet. Yeah, and most of us, you know, we, we're card-carrying good guys. We're not going to go ahead and risk our livelihood, our, our you know, our estates, our, our freedom to sell somebody a gun. Come on, that that happens, you know, from the back of a pickup truck, uh, but not by through card-carrying good guys and law-abiding citizens. And besides that, they call it a loophole. It is not a loophole. A loophole is when you're using the law to legally do something that's fishy. These people are simply breaking the law. That's all they're doing is breaking the law. And No laws in the world are going to stop criminals from doing it. Well, I don't think anybody, any of the the law-abiding gun owners are for illegal gun sales. I think we can all agree that we're against illegal gun sales. Absolutely, absolutely. And so this actually concludes another episode of Locked, Loaded, and Legal. Man, this this half hour goes by so quickly. Flies when you're having fun. And we had a ball. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate your time and your dedication. And thank you for listening again to Locked, Loaded, and Legal. Be safe. Thank you for listening to another episode of Locked, Loaded, and Legal, brought to you by Philly Firearms Radio. For more information and to show your support, visit LockedLoadedAndLegal.com.